0: what it always kind of rolls back to is that we don't believe in ourselves. We don't have a high enough sense of self-worth to believe that we could handle all of these situations without alcohol.
1: You are listening to the Life Tonic Podcast, your resource for intentional living and personal growth. This podcast is designed to inspire you to be your most glowingly brilliant self. I am your host, Joanna O., And I'm grateful for you joining me on this journey where we explore the many nuances of what it means to thrive in our bodies and minds. I will be joined by inspiring leaders, healers, visionaries, creators, and disruptors in every sense of the word. With each episode, we will aim to challenge opinions, ask questions and unpack the topics around intentional living that you are most curious about. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the Lifetonic Podcast. I'm so grateful for you tuning in, and I'm beyond excited to introduce my conversation with Amanda Kuda, Mindset Coach, known on Instagram as Authentically Amanda. She is based in Texas, and we had the opportunity to speak in the beginning of lockdown about all things living alcohol-free. And Amanda tells her story of how her relationship with alcohol was preventing her from being the best version of herself. Amanda works with women, like you and I, who are ready to step into their authentic truth and who want to change their relationship with alcohol. This process kind of becomes the catalyst for her growth. In part one of my conversation with Amanda, because yes, the episode was very long and I had to cut it into two parts. We take a deep dive into what our personal relationship with alcohol may look like, whether you are sober curious, interested in unpacking your relationship with drinking, or don't feel a particular way about alcohol. As Amanda puts it at the beginning of our conversation, there will be something each person can take away from this exchange. Make sure to tune into part two where we go a little deeper into what living alcohol-free represents in the context of friendships and dating, answering the ultimate question, will I commit social suicide if I quit drinking? Now on to my conversation with Amanda. Hi Amanda and
0: welcome to the Lifetime podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and chat today.
1: Thanks for being here. So for those listening, Amanda is a mindset and life coach for ambitious women. Her passion is normalizing the alcohol-free lifestyle and helping high-achieving women navigate the world without alcohol so that they can step into their power, which I love. Her mission is to model how choosing sobriety can be a magic bullet to living a more authentic, fulfilling, and joyful life. And she shares about her own personal growth and sobriety journey on her website and Instagram under Authentically Amanda. And I'm super lucky to have her here today because this topic is massive. It is. Thank
0: you so much for allowing me to share this with your audience. I really think that everyone, even if you drink very little or you don't think that alcohol is an issue in your life, everyone will get something out of this conversation.
1: Oh, absolutely. Discovering your work. So for those that kind of don't know, I definitely recommend obviously checking out your website and you share some really amazing resources and content also on Instagram. But for me coming into this, it was kind of like I was hearing a lot about this whole Sort of rise of the sober curious person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard that. Yeah, the curious term has just been thrown around quite a lot. For me, it it was quite interesting because I come from a should I say, I guess a family that was broken to some degree by alcohol, mm-hmm. and it's always been a stigma around the way I was raised, right? So it was always like this sort of problematic issue that you know we never really talked about. And so both my step parents, well, my stepdad and my step and my mom have always been, as far as I can remember, sober, which was interesting growing up because you kind of had both worlds. So me at home and then me out into the world, kind of meeting people and you know, going through all the motions of like discovering what alcohol was and partying and stuff like that. So it's really, really interesting to see that through my journey of being sober curious, because I think I have been, I've just been faced with so much kind of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Does that resonate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that especially if you had
0: an example in childhood where alcohol was bad, it was something that people couldn't handle. And that's kind of what the people growing up around you showed you that there are some tendencies to, first of all, cement in your mind, even if you don't intend to that, oh, because I know that, and I don't know if, um, you know, you got to see either of your parents as drinkers, but certainly it was represented to you that drinking was not good for them. So whether you were able to see it and witness it or not, you internalized in your child mind, okay, this is bad, this is maybe something that I don't want to do, or I don't want to let myself ever get to the place that mom and dad got, right? Because you always, you always want to do better than your parents in some way. So there's this subconscious part of you that says, okay, well, I want to do that thing because obviously everyone else is doing it. So I want to drink, but maybe mom and dad had an issue with it, but I'm not going to let myself get that bad. So you, first of all, often start to regulate yourself where you'll never reach the, the tremendous, you know, rock bottom or whatever that someone else as an example had in your life. But We're also taught in society that if you want to quit drinking, the only reason to do it is because you have a problem. And so this is really beaten to us through the recovery lingo, which uh, there's nothing wrong with recovery. If you have gotten to a point where you need to have assistance, that is absolutely valid. But because recovery exists, it also creates a stigma for people who maybe would be better off without alcohol, but aren't quite aren't quite to a rock bottom yet and it just we just have this language around like well if you don't have a problem you don't need to stop everything you're doing is normal so just kind of keep doing it right yeah and you
1: put it so well
0: yes thank you it's it's just a problem you know sobriety has a bad brand I actually say that I'm alcohol free that's almost I've barely ever uttered the words, I'm sober. I usually say I don't drink or I'm alcohol free because the brand of sobriety is recovery. And for so many people that makes it inaccessible or unnecessary. And I just want to create a language and a conversation around living this vibrant lifestyle where you choose to not dilute yourself. And for me, that's being alcohol free. And I think that's really started to resonate with people who have been looking for a way out, but haven't been able to find someone to say, oh, hey, it's okay. You could stop drinking. You don't have to be an alcoholic to do that.
1: Absolutely. Oh, that's so, that's so, so true. I think so many women that I talk to and also around this whole topic of sober curious is they struggle with the response they get.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: for me, say, in, in if we were just to look at the pure like wellness aspect of it throughout, say, going through different you know cycles in my life I've decided okay I'm just going to be alcohol free now and that's Mm -hmm. been just my body telling me I don't feel great doing this Mm -hmm. and in a social setting and specifically I don't know if you you wouldn't know maybe if you've been to the UK you would know but in the UK it's a very big sort of there's a very big drinking culture Mm -hmm. and everything that has to do with work has to do with drinking so the phrase that you're often hearing back when you say no thanks, you know, I, I'm I'm not drinking or I don't want to drink or whatever after work, it's are you pregnant? Mm-hmm. Are you heavy medication? Are you or do you have a drinking problem? And it is so true what you said about it's just a bad brand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'd love to know how you sort of overcame those initial reactions when you went alcohol free.
0: Yeah, you know, it was it was difficult because I I also, you know, I quit drinking um close to four years ago, three and a half now. And I remember the very beginning of that process where my body was telling me kind of some of the same things. My body and mind were saying, Sister, this is not for you anymore. I know that you have built this identity around being kind of this party girl socialite, but this is not for you. Um and I had this deep, deep intense knowing that I had to quit drinking alcohol, but I was so afraid to, you know, really commit social suicide that I really was trying to manage the situation. So I thought, you know, maybe my maybe my inner voice didn't quite mean I needed to quit. Maybe it just meant cut back a little bit. And so I tried to do that because I didn't want to be a social outcast. I didn't want to have to stand out from my friends or have all of my friends start to reject me. That was my big fear. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the message here is first of all, your body is very intelligent. And I wanna touch, probably touch back upon that point that if your body is sending you signals, it's for a reason. If your mind is sending you signals, it's for a reason. And you should definitely lean into it and explore it because your body is such an intelligent thing that it will only send you these messages if, they're, if it's important. You would never get this like random idea to quit drinking if it wasn't important to you. So that's one thing. But the biggest message is, you do not have to have a problem with alcohol for it to be a problem in your life. And if you are looking at this as some sort of element where you're going to be excluded socially or, um, you know, you won't be able to fit in, you won't be able to cope, then I want you to explore some of the deeper things under that because what it always, what it always kind of rolls back to is that we don't believe in ourselves. We don't have a high enough sense of self-worth to believe that we could handle All of these situations without alcohol. Mm -hmm. And that goes for socializing, that goes for sex, that goes for dating, that goes for, you know, celebrating, that goes for having a shitty day. All of these things are are life situations that we've worked into our mind that we need alcohol to sort out, that we need alcohol to cope with, that we need alcohol to, um, you know, make better. And it's not true, but we've started to believe this series of lies and, they're so deeply ingrained to us that it's really hard to rewrite that story. So, you know, when I to kind of wrap back around to your question, and we can touch back on any more of those in more detail. But when I first started out on this journey, I was looking for someone to say, hey, it's not social suicide. Hey, you don't have to have a problem. Hey, that voice you're hearing in your head is actually right. And three and a half years ago, there weren't very many people talking about this. There were literally people who were in recovery and wanted you to go to AA, which again, is fine. Um, Mm -hmm. That just didn't resonate with me. And then there were people who just where maybe just had never drank very much. And so they weren't very good models for me either because they had never been into the depths of really identifying as this social party girl as I had. And so they couldn't be very good mentors either. So I was in this double bind where neither of the audiences that were presented to me as non-drinkers were my people. And so I had to honestly make the bold move to decide, okay, there's no one to show me the way. And I'm going to make the way myself. And so after I started to pave that way myself and really develop, what is it like to create a life as a non-drinker? What is it like to sort through and navigate all of the pitfalls? Then I had kind of started to build this process that I realized I would be doing a great disservice if I didn't share it with other people. Because if I was looking for someone to be a mentor and a guide, then certainly there are other people. And just you know, I've had tons of conversations since then as a coach, but even just hearing that from you, knowing that you probably needed someone to say, Hey, Joanna, this is, it's okay to make this decision. Listen to your body, listen to your instinct and, and do what's best for you.
1: Oh my God. That's, that's exactly it. To be fair. Mm -hmm. I think, first of all, I agree. There's a very, it's a very hush hush conversation, which is really weird as opposed to like, you know, how much we actually talk about alcohol, left, right and center. Yeah, Yeah. I think for me, you know, I'm I'm just trying to sort of put myself in those situations. And I think you've got so many profiles of people probably that you come across in your work as well as a coach, the fabric of how they see alcohol in their life is different. And it's coming from a different place. But what's really, really interesting is, Something that I saw in your work is the concept of gray area drinking, Mm -hmm. because that's really, really where I identified with it. And I was like, whoa, I had a bit of an aha moment. Like, you know what? I've never been I don't have an addictive personality. I have always been able to live without alcohol Sometimes I felt like I don't want to drink for months and I go ahead and do that and then maybe I'll have a drink again and I don't feel like it's the end of the world. But then a lot of those patterns that you talk about, I think, apply to maybe 99% of the people around me in one way or another. And that's just crazy. So what is gray area drinking?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a kind of term that's just come onto the scene. It was really popularized by one of my mentors, Jolene Park. She has a really great TED Talk that you can catch on YouTube about gray area drinking. And the gray area is obviously the area that's kind of in the middle. It's a little not black or white. So the, the black side, the dark side would be alcoholism. The light side would be, Oh, I'm just a take it or leave it drinker. I can have a drink every now and then it's not a big deal for me. And the thing is that we have this vision in our head that it's either black or white and every, you know, anything else is normal. But the problem is that normal area, most people who are in the quote unquote, normal area are drinking in the gray area. And that means you're drinking more than you would like. You're drinking, you can control it, but you usually tend not to. So usually what gray area drinkers are doing are one of two things. You're either drinking kind of consistently throughout the week. So you're having a couple of glasses of wine to wind down on each week night. Um, and that kind of just goes every day of the week, or you're able to not drink during the week. And then you really hit it hard on the weekend. And either way you slice it, your intake of alcohol is a consistent, drip into your body. And gray area drinkers have trouble with moderation. Typically it's all or nothing. And usually they are drinking in social settings. They're not drinking, you know, on their own very often, um, necessarily drinking more in social settings to where it's completely acceptable for the gray area drinker. Everything you're doing is perceived as normal to everyone around you and everyone around you is drinking the same way. So it's all that more difficult to identify because the behavior has been so normalized that it's difficult for you to even see.
1: Oh my God. Yes, that's exactly it. And I think so many women struggle with that. And I'm talking even about, you know, women that are very successful in whatever way they choose to define that or, you know, in a professional setting. And it's just that kind of, extra maybe pressure but I really I want to go back to what you were saying earlier I really liked what you said about most of us not believing that we can handle certain situations mm-hmm. and that sort of idea of liquid courage because I know so many women around me who you know are maybe coming from that mindset why do we have that conditioning you know how can we let go of that oh, it goes
0: deep it, It goes so deep. Honestly, in my work, it goes really deep. So, a lot of people would just say, Oh, well, you've been conditioned to believe that, you know, that in our society, that you celebrate with drinking, you commiserate with drinking, you drown your sorrows with drinking, you get creative juices flowing with drinking, you loosen up for a date with drinking. You know, you could say that. And yes, that is true. But for the high achieving women that I work with who are able to drink at a high level yet still show up and perform what I find is something that's even deeper so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of take you into that story. So usually for high achieving women they have developed one of two stories that go way back to childhood and that is either that they are not enough or that they are too much on their own. And not enough comes from often, you know, something that a parent unwittingly did to make you feel like you weren't good enough, something a teacher unwittingly did or something a peer did. And often it has to do with the way that we're taught to regulate our emotional system. So most of our parents, even though they were doing the best job that they could, they didn't have the skills to actually get in there and say, um, teach us how to manage our emotions because they weren't taught to do it themselves. So when we had kind of those more negative emotions like stress, anxiety, uncertainty, sadness, what they might have done is taught us to handle it in a couple of different ways. They might've told us that big girls or big boys um, don't cry. So you just get rid of that emotion so that there we, there, and we were taught the bad, the bad emotion was not favorable, it wasn't attractive. Um, they might have taught us to smother it down by distraction. So we might've been given food or TV or a treat to distract us, or we might've been taught that our parents can take on the emotion for us. So perhaps our mother, um, you know, tried to overcoddle us and make us feel better and take on that emotion from us so that we didn't have to feel it and whichever way you slice it, You are being robbed of the opportunity to learn to process that emotion. So you don't learn how to process sadness. You don't learn how to process anxiety or stress or whatever it is properly. And then you transition into adolescence where you start to kind of develop your independence from your attachment figures. And you don't know how to, you don't have anyone to teach you these other techniques, you know. And what's handed to you about that time, but alcohol. So you are now given this kind of magic elixir that is teaching you how to then soothe through all of those emotions that you were never taught to deal with in the first place. And it feels pretty good because, hey, you don't know how to do this anyway, so screw it. Let's just drink our way through it because we're taught that that's okay. Okay. So that's one model we're taught. We're not enough. We're not good enough to feel our emotions. We're not capable of handling and managing our emotions. And every time you drink, even though you might not be saying that to yourself subconsciously, if you rationalize that we all know alcohol is not good for you, you're, you're drinking poison people, you're you're drinking ethanol mixed with sugar to make it taste good. So if you know that and you're willing to still drink, then it has to ha- be having some sort of like more favorable effect on you. And for most of those people, it for most people, not those people or any people, for all of us, it is because we subconsciously believe it is helping us achieve something we are not able to achieve on our own. So that's one reason. Wow. And that's, that's almost everyone. You could argue, oh, well, I just like the taste of alcohol. You know, there are so many arguments and I get it. But what you probably really like the taste of is sugar that's mixed with the alcohol. You like the mixer in it because if you've ever drink in, I'm not sure what you have there in the UK, but the equivalent here would be Everclear and it tastes like nail polish remover. It tastes disgusting. And that's what pure alcohol tastes like. So let's be real. You don't like the taste of alcohol. You like the stuff that it's mixed with and you're willing to tolerate any sort of kind of icky flavor because of the buzz it gives you. So. Let me just debunk that there. And then I want to go into the second reason that I find that high achieving women are drinking quite a bit. And that's because, so the first one was, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not capable enough. And the second one is you're too much. And especially for women, we are fed this story that we cannot show up as our biggest, boldest, you know, I love how you say um, in your intro, your most glowing and brilliant self. We're taught that we need to kind of be prim and proper and stand off to the side and, for most of us, we're, we're just taught to dim and dull our light, and we're taught that we need to kind of stand back a little bit because we we are not here to make other people comfortable. Women are the the feminine figure, the one who's supposed to be nurturing, and as a nurturer, we're not supposed to shine and be you know be big, bold, and bright. And it's also not necessary because we're not we're not designed to be the breadwinner. So we're given all of these signals throughout life and childhood, even if you have wonderful parents, even the even if that you were still exposed to programming that said step back a little bit you don't need to shine and if you are someone who is high achieving outgoing um someone who's predisposed to shining very bright then you have to have a tool to help you dull yourself down and get get on the level of everyone else and that is a reason that most people don't realize and i didn't i did not realize this until maybe two years into my alcohol-free journey when I was kind of trying to decide why is it that I actually started drinking? And I realized it's because I never fit in. I was always kind of thinking in a more mature way. I always had this outlook on life and what I was supposed to do that was probably a little more advanced and out there compared to my peers. And when you're just trying to get along with the friends who you, you know, have been dealt you start to feel a little weird. And I I definitely recognize that weirdness. So when alcohol was presented to me, it was less about drinking to fit in and more about drinking so that I didn't stand out. And once I crystallized in on that, like really, um, really specific reasoning, I, it, it was like, my mind was blown. Like I wasn't necessarily drinking like everyone else. I was drinking to keep
1: myself small. Oh my God. I just got goosebumps as you said that <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can 100% relate and I'll tell you why, because one thing I noticed, I was just thinking as you were speaking, because it's not straightforward, that second reason that we drink to, you know, to kind of keep ourselves small and dim Not our at light. all. Mm-hmm. It's not very straightforward and it's not what you would normally, it's not what first would come to mind, but mm-hmm. I was trying to think. And sort of as part of my personal growth journey, thinking back to, for example, when I started drinking, which is normally like, you know, here in Europe is a little bit different than the U.S. Normally, you start drinking around the age of 16 Mm -hmm. and at 16, you are a mess of things like literally like so much is going on in your body on a physiological level, on a psychological level. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, I remember quite clearly being you know very much like what you described like I was always you know a a child that felt a bit different like I never really fit in I was always kind of not with the other kids if Mm -hmm. you know what I mean you know yes and then going into sort of teenage years like 15 16 I mean you're still a child granted but and then you sort of get introduced to alcohol I remember that whole period of my life as like 16 to about maybe 18, which is when the excitement kind of starts to die down because you've already, you know, had access. It's not forbidden and you've seen what it's about. And then it's only recently, it's only in sort of my mid to late 20s that I've realized I actually was so far away from myself in that time when I saw myself in hindsight partying and going out and getting drunk and doing all these things I couldn't have been further away from myself. So almost now it was like not a sobering effect, but like a realization of coming home to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Feel that? Yes.
0: You know, and that's why, my, you know, a lot of my work centers around authenticity, because I realized that I had built this facade for myself. And I kind of, you know, I like to refer to it, I need to trademark this because I refer to it as Carrie Bradshaw syndrome. And for most women kind of our age, sex in the city was really the coming of age thing at, oh at God, the time yeah. I was starting Uh, Yeah, exactly. Like, so you admired those women. And what did those women do? Those women wore fabulous clothes. They were powerful. They had kick-ass jobs. They always were getting the most attractive men. They were confident. They had great friendships and they always had a martini in their hand. So I developed this persona around me that, that thought I needed to be like the Carrie Bradshaw. And I, you know, even though, you know, the show is make believe a part of your subconscious in order to watch it and not process that there's like directors and film and a script, you have to forget about that. So part of your mind, when you watch TV, you go into that alpha or theta state where you believe it to be real. And so part of you takes on and and starts to resonate with the characters. That's why you get so sad when a series that you love ends is because you've built you know, a heart for these characters in your, in your psyche. And so part of you does, yes, take on that. this is how life is supposed to be, especially when you're young and impressionable and watching these things at like 16, 17, 18. And so my authentic, my authentic self thought she was Carrie Bradshaw. That's what I thought. And so I really worked hard to uphold this persona of this woman living this, living this fabulous life. And I want to wrap back around to that comment you made earlier that your your body had kind of started to send you this message and I I want to state that you know I don't think there's anything wrong with drinking. There's nothing wrong with people who are drinkers, but I do believe in Dharma. And so I think that everyone has a different Dharma and a level of enlightenment that they're supposed to reach in this life. So some people will go through life and kind of live out that party lifestyle and they'll never really even feel called to explore a higher calling or explore any sort of enlightenment and that's okay. But if your body has called to you, if your mind, your heart, your soul, your higher self, whoever you want to call it, has maybe even whispered to you just a little bit that life might be better without alcohol, that is a signal that you are meant for something more and that you need to explore it. So when I started to get that that little whisper, it also started to make me, viscerally uncomfortable with with drinking. So I would start to get these physical and mental hangovers that lasted longer and longer and longer. And yeah, you could could argue, oh, Amanda, that's because you passed the 30-year-old threshold and your body just started like (laughs) revolting. Sure, sure, sure. But there was just this other inner sense of knowing that I was meant for something big. I was meant for something important and I had diluted it down for so long that the authentic essence inside of me was starting to get angry and starting to get dissatisfied. And she was like almost clawing to get out. And so by the time that I had kind of, you know, tried to silence that whisper for a while, it started to become a loud roar. And so that was me saying, self, you need to come back. You are someone else right now. This, we let you play out this game for long enough, but you are meant for something so much bigger than this and alcohol cannot be a part of the picture. And when I finally got that message, that's when I just kind of had that same experience of, okay, it's time to come home to myself. I owe this to myself and I owe it to the rest of the world because I have a
1: gift to give that I'm stifling down right now. That's incredible. A part of you thinking, recognizing that calling that Mm -hmm. you have this message to share, but then Mm -hmm. that ego, like, I don't know if I want to call it ego, but Just the bad voice inside saying, and now it makes total sense. And it resonates what you said just a moment ago about the second reason of why people are drinking is Mm -hmm. to to dim that calling. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting that you mentioned also the physical reaction. I want to know more about that because for me, for instance, I had a time when I realized, you know, I wasn't drinking for a while and like I said, by choice, there was no particular reason why it just happened. And I followed that calling. And very interestingly, when I first had a drink after that, a very small amount, I started getting consistent, like the same bodily reaction every single time. Mm-hmm. I would get extremely hot, extremely agitated for mm-hmm. no particular reason. And I'd be like, just literally, like you described it so well, just wanting to crawl out of your skin. like just mm-hmm. get... This body just does not belong to me. Yeah. So uh, let me touch on both of those things. Let me touch on the ego
0: aspect and then the physical reaction. So I am, I'm not sure if any of your listeners are familiar with the text, um, the metaphysical text, A Course in Miracles, but I'm a student and teacher of that course. And it basically teaches that um, the ego is fear. The ego wants you to live in fear. And the ego is always opposed to your higher self. Because if your higher self is to come into the picture, then your ego self gets, has to, has to leave the scene. Right. And so your ego self likes you to play small. Your ego self likes you to live in fear. Your ego self likes you to feel separate and different from everyone else because then the ego can take over. And so many of the messages uh, that we're taught are brought on from the ego because most people aren't aware of its existence or how to kind of monitor it and control it. And so then from that standpoint, when you do start to kind of reach and stretch and want to do better, your ego is like, oh, no, 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 don't forget. This is very fearful. This is scary. You need to come back to what's safe and easy, even though it's miserable. And your your ego wants you to play small. So, of course, when you had you felt different earlier in life, it wants you to lean into that and say, yes, 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 you are different. You, you are weird. Um, and then later in life, when you want to do better, your ego just tries to shut that down. So that is a very real thing that happens that I want everyone to be aware of that yeah. your ego feels better when you play safe. So if you've ever felt that, like, just know that or if you felt like called to do more, but you can't seem to get yourself motivated, that's almost always your ego trying to keep you in fear and in lack mentality and tell you that you can't do it. But Let me be your higher voice for a second and just say that you can, you can, and you deserve it and you owe it to the rest of the world to explore that gift and explore that call because we need you to show up as your most glowing and brilliant self. That's what we need, especially right now, especially with everything that's happening in the world. We need you to be fully aware, fully awake and fully in your power and your confidence and in your authenticity. So I'll step off my, my ego soapbox. And now let's talk about the physical reaction. That is really interesting. So, again, we know alcohol is ethanol. It's not good for your body. Uh, also, like, newsflash for anyone who's thinking that, oh, but the antioxidants and wine and all of these things, these studies that say you should <laughs> drink a glass of day. Really dig into those studies, my friends, because most of them are just printed in like fluff magazines. They don't have scientific backing. I can provide you with plenty of articles that do have scientific backing, but you don't get served those those articles on the internet because they're not popular and fun and cool. So of course you receive the message that the antioxidants in wine are helping you. And let me just tell you, there's just as many antioxidants in a glass of really nice fruit juice. So There's no argument there. You could get more antioxidants by drinking juice than you do out of wine. So alcohol is not good for you. It's literally going into all of your vital organs and screwing with your system. And the problem is that your system doesn't know how to deal with this poison. So one of the ways in which it processes it is it just keeps asking for more, basically, because your system gets so out of whack that it's like, OK, let me try and function with this weird thing happening. So when you're drinking consistently, you're just feeding it and you're also kind of overriding the symptoms. You're making it to where it doesn't seem as bad. It's it's just the same for anyone who has realized, you know, they have a gluten intolerance. You realize you're not Feeling good, but you don't realize how bad you felt until you actually remove the gluten from your system. And then you better believe the next time you have like a scone or whatever it is that you have, you feel like crap and you remember what that was like and that you were living in it consistently because you just kept fueling it into your, are funneling it into your body. So yeah. alcohol builds up in your body. That's one thing. And then the second is because it is a toxin, your body actually doesn't know how to process it. And so I won't get super sciency here because I'm not a scientist, but if you want to read um, a really easy to understand um, synopsis of how this works, um, my friend William Porter has a book called Alcohol Explained, um, and he's there in the UK as well. He's lovely. He um, is super smart on the topic and explains it really in layman's terms, but essentially your, your body is trying to flush out a toxin that it doesn't know how to get rid of. And so you're never really truly processing it. So kind of like you said, when you go on a little break and you'd feel pretty good, and then your body would introduce it back, your body starts freaking out because it knows this thing is bad and that we have to start this cycle all over again. And So really, I mean, you are just wreaking havoc on all of your central nervous system. Anytime that you drink, even if it's just a little every now and then, you know, I know that this is a really hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, but it's just the fact it's not, it's not good for any, any organ in your body. You get the mental aspect where you start to kind of get like, I guess the proper, the popular term for it now is anxiety, where you start to get that, that, that icky feeling that you feel a little sad and a little, like you want to crawl out of your skin and you can't get rid of it and really the only way that seems like you could get rid of it is if you drink a little bit more
1: oh my god I love this term anxiety mm-hmm. I hadn't heard about it actually but um it makes total sense and I think in sort of recent history when I've had maybe a few too many the day after is like just filled with guilt yeah yeah um, Like, you know, like not even if you feel a a physical hangover, but just walking around thinking, well, who, you know, like ego talking like, well, you know, what is all this work you're doing if you did that last night? I mean, you know, and it's just like perpetuating obviously the wrong and harmful, unhelpful narrative.
0: Yeah. And it just, it like you said, it puts you on a slippery slope. Like, well, I screwed this up already. So I might as well eat like crap for the rest of the weekend and have more drinks and not achieve my goals that I'm that I'm wanting to achieve. And it just trickles back in. And by about the time you start to get your footing through the week, it's time to drink again.
1: I think a lot of people function this way. And a lot of people certainly that I know that have been in my social circle um, would kind of kind of navigate from one extreme to the other. Like you said, you know, well, you know, it's the same with diets you put yourself on like a super restrictive diet, then all you're going to think about is, you know, I screwed up now, I'm going to have this scone. And then for the rest of the month, I'll just, you know, I'll reset next month or whatever. But I think it's interesting what you said. Obviously, I think it is a hard pill to swallow, but we all know alcohol isn't good for you. Thinking back to those years of, and I'd love to know a bit more about your story as well of what you described as the Carrie Bradshaw effect, which I think you should totally trademark because it's awesome. And it's so, so it's such a generational thing as well. Oh so much. <laughs> um for me, yeah, it was very, you know, glamorous. And I think a lot of us have thought, Yeah, I'm living the dream. I'm living this life and that's what I want to recreate when actually it is not real. And yeah. thinking back to who I was then. I don't know if you also struggled to reconcile with that image. That's one thing, to sort of, you know, see her and accept her and she was this way, but I'm here now. And then also from a social standpoint because a lot of conversations I've had with people are about, you know, a you're going to feel like a social outcast if you stop drinking. That's the first assumption. And then the second thing is, what about my friends? And really what I thought about was, who were my friends when I was that girl? Mm -hmm. And they're not my friends to this day, Mm -hmm. right? And so (laughs) there was a bit of that. So that was, you know, that was for a reason. And so I think it's really important that, you know, we talk about how it takes you so far away from yourself like i said earlier just drinking thinking that you belong in a setting that is perpetuating this and then and then thinking that you're going to lose that you know and there's that fear of i will not be myself without those people. i will not be myself without that identity that is actually just a facade